Some people call it being in the zone or being in flow state. I think all of those are accurate, but for me, it was just very second to second. What do I need to do right now to put together a really good performance for this team? Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. It's official. Jessie Diggins is the fastest woman in the world, at least on cross-country skis. Earlier this month, Diggins, a Minnesota native who trains in Vermont, became the first American woman to win the overall World Cup cross-country skiing title. This is just the latest first for Diggins. In January, she became the first American to win the Tour de Ski, a multi-day ski race modeled on the Tour de France bike race. And in 2018, she and teammate Keegan Randall became the first American women to win a gold medal in cross-country skiing at the Olympics. As Diggins smashes records, she has become an icon for other female skiers around the country and the world. Her explosive speed is matched by her fun-loving public persona, in which she races with glitter on her face and is often captured on podiums, jumping for joy. Diggins has also been praised for her candor about her struggles with eating disorders, which she recounts in her new memoir, Brave Enough. Jessie Diggins and several of her teammates on the U.S. women's cross-country team were guests on the Vermont Conversation in January 2018, just days before they left for the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. What happened there is now part of ski racing legend, when Diggins and Kickin' Randall won Olympic gold in the team's sprint. The race featured what many say was the most exciting moment of the 2018 Olympics, the final lap when Diggins was locked in a three-way contest with the top female skiers from Sweden and Norway. As Diggins battled to break past her two opponents, the announcers from NBC Sports captured the thrill of the moment. As the roars rattle around the cross-country stadium in Pyeongchang, Sweden, the U.S. and Norway come into the line. Here comes Diggins! On Here the outside, Diggins making the play around Sweden. Yes! Jesse Diggins yes! to the line. Yes! And it is yes! Jesse Diggins Go! delivering a landmark Go! moment that will be etched in U.S. Olympic history. The first ever cross-country gold medal for the U.S. Here comes Diggins, as the NBC announcers screamed, could well be a motto for Jessie Diggins as she smashes records in the ski world right now. I began my conversation with Diggins by asking her what she was thinking in that 2018 race as she rounded the final bend to one of the most thrilling finishes in cross-country ski racing history. A lot of people say like, oh, like, were you, you know, worried about your odds against them? Or were you thinking about, you know, what, you know, were you thinking about a medal? And the honest answer is no. In the moment, you're just so focused on the task at hand. And some people call it being in the zone or being in flow state. But um, I think all of those are accurate. But for me, it was just very second to second. What do I need to do right now? to put together a really good performance for this team. So, um, you know, rounding the corner, Stina was, you know, flinging her poles back and they were catching me in the face and bouncing off my glasses. So in the video, you'll see me like put my hands up trying to like <laughs> protect my face. And, you know, that's one moment. And then the next moment I get in um, right behind her and I realize this isn't the moment to try to pass. So I'm conserving a tiny bit of energy. And then as we 
come out of the final corner, I realize I need to try to pass and accelerate very decisively. So then you see me kind of change gears. Um, but it's, it's all very, you know, moment to moment, what can I do with my body and my skis and my poles and putting all the power I have down into every single push of my ski and plan to my poles so that I'm the most efficient and the most powerful I can possibly be in that moment. And even though your lungs are burning and your legs are burning and, you know, you can't even really think or breathe, you just, you just are so involved in the doing of the task. And that's what I think makes it so special. It wasn't like, we're going to win. We're going to get a medal. It wasn't focused on results at all. It was just focused on the process of trying to ski as fast and as hard as you possibly can. And I think that's what made it so magical and such an incredible race was because there wasn't this pressure to produce a medal. It was just um, being in the moment and producing a good race, which would have been a good race no matter what the results were. So there is a moment you are boxed in by uh, Stina Nilsson from Sweden and remind me the Norwegian racer's name. Mike and Kasperson okay. So you are boxed in and there is a moment where there is a kind of for a second, an opening between them and you step into it. it or that's what it looked like. I don't know if that's really what was going on there. How do you break out of, you know, the focus on the, the person right in front of you to catch that split second opportunity that you exploited? Yeah, I think a lot of ski racing, but in particular, the sprint events that are shorter and faster um, and there's not much room for error. I think a lot of one, what I've tried to work on the last couple of years is really, you know, you have to be aware of your own person, right? Like your skis, your poles, your equipment, how you're skiing, your technique, your power and your effort. But then you also have to save this part of your brain that's aware of your peripheral and, and everyone else and where the spaces are. And so if you're leading, you have to be aware of, is someone coming up on my side? Am I leaving spaces, you know, between me and the best line of the course? Or if you're trying to get around people, you have to be aware of, you know, where is this person moving? Are they about to open a gap or, you know, can I squeeze through here? Um, and so that's, uh, it's not something I've always been very good at, but it's something I'm working on is being super aware of everyone else while still maintaining the focus and the energy on moving my own body down the track as fast as possible. So one of the other things uh, that we see, and we're going to link to the video of that final uh, on the Vermont conversation but your face is etched with pain, um, whether you know it or not. And you are famous for kind of your pain tolerance, your ability yeah. to excel when in the so-called pain cave. So what goes through your mind when the suffering really begins for you? Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing to be known for. Like, it'd be cool to be known for like really graceful technique or like <laughs> power or speed or something. But honestly, yeah, I, I feel like when I retire someday, I'm going to be known as the person who can just go really, really hard, which is cool in its own way. Um, but for me, I think a lot of it is just asking myself how I want to feel at the finish line and not physically. Obviously, I'm going to feel terrible at the finish line. Um, even if you're not pushing that far into the pain cave, you don't finish an endurance race feeling 
wonderful when, you know, when you, when you finish a marathon or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, but for me, it's, it's really, how do I want to feel mentally when I cross the finish line? And I always want to end a race and be able to look back at the race and really honestly ask myself, did I give it everything that I had? And a lot of people think they give a hundred percent, but really they're giving like 94. Like there's a whole lot more you could give if you are willing to really dig deep and really, really suffer. And most of the time we just can't or won't um, get to that place of, you know, really feeling like you could not possibly if your life depended on it, get one second faster on that course. And to me, there are actually very few races in my career where I've actually given a hundred percent. I could count them on one hand, even though I'm known for pain tolerance, most of the time I'm giving like 98% because it takes so much out of you to go the full 100%. But my goal is always to get as close to that as possible and really honestly be able to answer that question and say, yeah, if, you know, I could not have possibly gone one second faster. And so for me in the middle of the race, when I just think about, well, how do you want to feel at the finish? And I'm like, no way do I want to look in the mirror the night after the race and go, oops, I just was a little bit of a coward when it came down to it. I didn't want to push that hard because it hurt. Then, you know, for me, it, it becomes a very easy um, motivator to, to really grip my teeth and dig deep. And especially when my teammates are counting on me, you know, win or lose, I want to be able to cross that line and, and have everyone absolutely know that there's no way I could have gone harder. And that makes me feel very proud of the effort that I gave regardless of the result. There is a razor sharp line between maximum effort and injury and illness. How do you know you're not crossing that line? Yeah. You know, it's funny because cross country skiing is probably the healthiest sport on the planet. When you think about it, you know, it's, it's, it's not pounding the way it is running, but it's, it is weight bearing, but you're gliding. It uses arms, legs, core, balance, power, endurance. It's a lifelong sport. Um, and yet the way we race is probably not healthy. <laughs> like When you just ski, it's probably the best thing you could ever do for yourself. But when you race weekend after weekend and push yourself that hard, it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe it is, you know, a little bit tough on the body. But for me, the the way I look at it is, you know, yes, I push my body incredibly hard, but I balance that out with recovery and I make sure that I'm getting adequate energy and nutrition and I'm not trying to balance on the razor edge of being too lean. Like I don't try to go there because for me, if I want to be able to push my body that hard and know that I will recover and I will be able to build my muscles back up after I tear them back down and know that I'm not dancing on the edge of injury because I'm giving my body all the building blocks it needs, then I feel really good about it. So what, what do you do to recover? Um, well, just rest. <laughs> Mostly it's, um, you know, yes, I do a lot of body care as well, like percussive massage tools or um, I love massage. Um, that really, really helps, especially if you have any areas of tightness, you just don't want to let things get too tight, but a lot of it is simply not, you know, when your body is sending you those signals that it needs rest, then it's important to respect that and not be like, no, I just want to go ski and I'm going to go out there and push it anyways, because that's when we get closer to injury and not recovering well. So I think, 
it's, it's, it's all a big balancing act. You know, if I tip the scales one direction with huge, huge all out efforts in ski racing, then I need to make sure that I'm balancing those scales with rest and recovery and making sure that I'm fueling my body really well. So let's, uh, let's talk now about this season, which in many ways was a huge wild card and unknown whether and how much you or anyone would be able to race. And you trained in Vermont and trained and trained and trained. And I think, did I read that prior to your first World Cup race in Europe, you had six hours on snow? Is that correct? Yeah. Well, of classic skiing. So our season was uh, cut short in March and we were like five days away from the first U.S. World Cup in like 19 years. So that was absolutely heartbreaking. But on the, on the flip side, I got to be in Stratton with my fiance. He was able to work from home so he could live there with me. We finally got so much time together. I could be with my club team in a really safe environment. Um, as I'm sure you know, Stratton's kind of a nice little off the beaten path area where it's got great training, not tons of traffic. And from a COVID perspective, we felt like we had a really good bubble going on. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was really, really awesome. Like our training environment was so key. It was so dialed in and I felt like we were able to train really well. However, in a normal year, we would try to get on snow. We would go to Bend, Oregon in the spring. Then we would go to New Zealand for like three weeks of real winter conditions in um, August, September. And then we would try to maybe get on snow at a glacier on, in Alaska um, midsummer. And of course, none of those opportunities existed last year. So when I got uh, ready for our first World Cup, which was a classic sprint, yeah, I'd had six total hours of classic skiing on snow, which was not enough to bring back um, the real finer elements of my technique and particularly that feeling of connecting your kick pocket into the snow and really making, um, I would, I guess I would just say having high efficiency in your classic skiing. So for me, there was a lot of fitness that I came into the season with. I think I was in a better place fitness wise than I'd ever been, but the technique just needed time on snow. And so I found that from the first world cup weekend to the start of the tour to ski, it was like a different person classic skiing simply because I had finally had a month on snow to just get that feeling back. Do you think that that time away from snow, could it have helped you in some way or was in it only ways, an impediment? I mean, yeah, you really, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, tease apart the different layers, but, um, it's, you know, cause you can't really, you can't really definitively say it was good or bad because there's so many different elements of what makes us fast in this sport. But in one way it was great because I didn't lose any recovery time to travel and we weren't moving around. I was just in one place. And so my rest days were truly rest days, which was really, really awesome because even if you're not training, you know, you get on an airplane and you fly somewhere different and then you have jet lag, you know, that's not super restful. Um, but I also think in many ways it hurt me more than it helped me simply because it's easier to log a lot of hours on snow. It's even more gentle on your body than roller skiing where you're kind of slamming your 
pulled into the pavement and it can sometimes aggravate your elbows. But I do think being in one place, we did have such um, consistent training and that was really beneficial. So I think for me, I guess the big lesson was that it doesn't have to be perfect and you can still have the best season of your life. So whether it's injury, whether it's some sort of setback, whether you can't do exactly the training you want to do, knowing that that doesn't necessarily mean your season's blown. In fact, you might still have the opportunity to have an amazing season. That was, that was really cool. And that's something that I hope some of our young listeners take away from this is that, you know, even if things are a little bit different because of the pandemic, it doesn't mean that you can't still be super, super fit and have a great year. So in a season where so much went wrong for the world and for many of your fellow competitors, uh, what went right for you? How did, why was this the winter uh, when you become the first American woman to win the overall world cup? I'm going to be honest. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think there's one thing you can point to. I think a lot of it is just many, many years of really dedicated focused training with a really good team around me, kind of, you know, those years kind of stack up. And, you know, after a while, you've built this, this wall of training that you can really use. Um, you know, this year, I was 29 years old, and I've had more and more time, you know, I, I turned into a professional ski racer at 18 years old. So I've had a lot of years of doing this full time with full nights of sleep and full recovery and training professionally for a very long time. And so I think a lot of that is just putting the time and effort in consistently year after year, it's starting to really pay off these last few years. But um, I guess if I had to pinpoint one thing, it's that as I get older, I get better and better at understanding my body. So like we were talking about earlier, balancing the scales with the, the hard efforts, but also the rest and recovery. Um, because, you know, if you work really hard, but you never recover from it, then you're actually just getting slower. <laughs> you're never actually going to get faster as an athlete if you can't recover. Um, so for me, I think understanding how it feels when my body has recovered and is ready to go again has really helped me because I'm better able to train in a really smart way because you can train smart and that's awesome. You can train hard and that's awesome. But if you train hard and smart, that's how you actually achieve excellence in this sport. You've become a mentor uh, to many, especially women skiers and younger women skiers who look to you as a role model, as an inspiration. Um, what do you, what would you say the 29 year old Jesse Diggins say to the 18 year old Jesse just starting out? What words of advice would you like to pass on to those younger skiers? Oh man, in terms of life or sport or? Both. Oh gosh. <laughs> well, I guess in terms of life, the biggest thing I've learned is that you don't have to be perfect. And I'm someone who is very type A, very perfectionistic. Um, I would label myself a try hard girl, you know, like everything I do, I'm going to try really, really hard and try to get it right, which is awesome. That's a really good um, skill set to have that perseverance and that drive. But sometimes it can turn around and hurt us when we're so focused on getting things perfect that we're unwilling to just pat ourselves on the back and accept a job well done, even if it's not perfect, you know, so for me, I think in terms of life advice, I would tell my 18 year old self, you know, just being you being 
authentic, genuine Jesse is going to be enough. You don't have to be perfect. People are going to love you for who you are and that's going to be enough. Um, and I would honestly translate that into sport as well. I think, you know, I, I always am someone who wanted to follow the plan exactly, but sometimes you can't follow the plan. Sometimes the pandemic happens. Sometimes you get injured. Like this past August, I sprained my ankle super badly. Like I was on crutches for a day and it looked like it was broken. I had to go get x-rays. And it was one of those things where you're like, well, that wasn't part of the plan. I had to adjust my training still ended up having the best season of my life, but only because I allowed my body to recover from that injury before I really started moving on. So, um, and because I was willing to adapt. And so I guess I would say, be willing to be adaptable and, and know that you don't have to exactly follow the plan for things to work out. It's good to have a plan and to have a roadmap, but if you find yourself needing to take these detours, that's also okay. In June 2018, you posted on your blog an essay called Body Issues, and you wrote that you never thought you would reveal this secret. Talk about what was your secret and why it was so hard to go public with it. Yeah. So when I was 18, 19 years old, I struggled with bulimia, um, which is one of the many eating disorders that you can have. And um, thankfully, my family was so supportive, so loving, so caring. Um, they kind of figured out what was going on and encouraged me and helped me um, to check into the Emily program, which is a recovery center. And they have so many different options of recovery. And I ended up doing a, a intensive outpatient program, which meant that every day I would go from like eight to three um, and join a group. And it saved my life. Um, it helped me learn how to accept and love myself as I am. It helped me learn how to have a better relationship with food, how to stop labeling foods as good or bad or athlete food or not athlete food. It helped me learn how to just be able to eat anything and see it as fuel for an, living an awesome life. Um, and to just basically uh, love and respect myself. And so um, I also learned that eating disorders are a mental illness and that they're not your fault. It's not this choice. It's not a behavior issue. You know, you wouldn't go to someone with depression and be like, well, just snap out of it. Stop choosing to be sad. You know, you would never say that knowing what we know now. But I think eating disorders were so stigmatized and not very well understood for so long that I kind of thought, you know, I was just a bad kid. I didn't really realize that, no, this is, this is your mental health. This is your mental well-being that then translates into your physical well-being as well. Um, so it was really important to me to finally talk about that. Um, and I never really thought I would because I was very worried that if I revealed that part of my past, people would go, oh, that's, that's the eating disorder skier. That's like her thing. And they wouldn't just see me for me. Um, but in fact, the opposite happened. It turns out that uh, everyone was very understanding and compassionate. And also so many people came forward and said, oh, yeah, that was me, too. I also struggled with that. And it helped people realize that they weren't the only one to help people feel less alone. Um, and my ultimate goal was to basically break the taboo on talking about eating disorders and that aspect of mental health, simply because when you are able to talk about it, you're able to ask for help. 
because you don't feel like, oh, this is so shameful. I could never even tell someone that I'm struggling and therefore you're never going to get support and you're not going to have people encouraging you like, well, hey, there's this treatment center that you could drive to and they could help you and help you figure this out. So um, for me, it was really, really important to be able to talk about it because I feel like it's one way that I could use the platform that skiing has given me and sort of the audience that I can now reach because of sport and do something a little more important than just sport. And I love sport. It's so important, but it's not the most important thing in the world. And um, helping people destigmatize mental health struggles seems to be one way that I can try to give back and help people know that they're not alone. Many people don't think of the thing that they're struggling with, uh, you know, with a name. They don't think that it is an eating disorder, that it's called bulimia. So what was your experience of it? And when did you realize that you had a problem? Yeah, well, so I guess as a disclaimer, I go really deep into this in my book, Brave Enough. And so if you want like all the, <laughs> the entire like timeline of how I got into my eating disorder and then how I got help and how I got out of it, um, there are chapters <laughs> literally <laughs> on this. That's not all the book is about. But the short of it is that um, with bulimia, that's where you overeat and then you purge in some way, whether that is self-induced vomiting or some people use laxatives. There's so many different ways of using symptoms. But the term we use is using symptoms because they're symptoms of your eating disorder and they might look different for different people. Um, and so for bulimia, it was actually fairly obvious when you use symptoms that this is not normal, um, as opposed to, you know, if somebody is using disordered eating habits, like, oh, that's bad food. I can't eat that. Even if you don't have any sort of allergy or actual food restriction, um, you know, if you don't have celiacs, but you're like, I can't eat that. It's bad. It will make me gain weight. Then you're using disordered eating habits, even if you don't have a clinically diagnosed eating disorder. So those are a little bit trickier to identify. A lot of people think, well, pretty much everyone around me is doing this. So how could I have a problem? Because I think, especially in America, we have a lot of disordered eating habits that have sort of through pop culture and um, just different ways, they've sort of almost become mainstream, but it doesn't mean that they're good for us or good for our mental health because food is something that should just be fuel and it doesn't have to be good or bad. It can be enjoyed in a way to bring people together. It shouldn't have to be this stressful, emotional experience. Hmm. Um, I put uh, out on Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you and offered for people to have you answer some of their burning questions for Jesse Diggins. One uh, that came up is, what is your pre-race ritual with music, food, mantras you repeat to yourself? Clue us Yeah. In. Um, well, so a lot of our races start around 11 or 1130. So I get up and I go for a little morning jog just to kind of help myself wake up, get the blood flowing. That's usually like five or 10 minutes, literally just enough, not enough to get tired in any way, but just enough to kind of feel really energized and awake. And then I go to breakfast. Um, I will often have a big bowl of oats with um, some sort of nut butter. Peanut butter is usually pretty easy to find, um, but I also like almond butter or really any sort of nut butter and um, a banana and then maybe like an egg on the side. Um, 
if there's berries available, I'll put those on there too. And then I go pack my race bag and sort of folding and organizing and getting all my different layers of clothing um, and jackets all laid out is sort of, it's very calming. Often we'll play some music while we do that. Um, I'm really just into top 40 hits. I'm really cheesy that way. But um, so getting the race bag packed and then I braid my hair. I usually do some crazy braids that function to keep my hair out of my face as well as just giving me something to do. And then I put glitter on my cheeks. Um, and yeah, that's sort of my morning ritual. And that fills up the time between getting up and then when we're heading to the venue. Hmm. Um, people see you and you alone, you know, out there lunging for the finish line. But you told uh, Vermont journalist Peggy Shin, who's written about you um, recently, you said, we win together and we lose together. A lot of people are unaware of what the together part is because they think of this as an individual sport. So explain. Yeah, so it is, this is one of the things I love about our sport is that even though it seems on the outside like an individual sport, it really is a team sport. We train with our teammates all spring, summer, and fall. And so any advancements I make in getting faster off the line and getting better technique, that's due to my teammates pushing me, encouraging me. Um, I get to follow them and they follow me in return. So when one of us has a good result, everyone feels ownership in that because we helped train with each other to get each other to that level. It's sort of that concept of, you know, all ships rise. And, um, that's, that's one thing I really love about it. But then we also have coaches and wax techs and a huge part of skiing that is, I think they should show this on TV, honestly, because I think it's fascinating, but hours before the race starts, our team of wax techs are out there on the snow and they probably put in 20 to 30 kilometers just testing waxes. And there's so many different components to waxing skis. There's all these different layers of wax and the way that they put the wax on can even differ. If you put um, a wax on one way versus ironing it in versus brushing it or powdering it, that changes the way it performs on the snow. So they test so many different combinations and then they go to our wax truck and then they wax up the skis and um, somewhere in that process we go out and we test skis with our wax tech so for me on a skate day my tech jason cork might have eight pairs of skis down in the snow and we narrow it down to the fastest one and then he takes that back to the truck and waxes it up with the waxes that the techs have determined is the right combination for that day and, you know, it's kind of cool because on a, in a, any given race, some teams are going to totally nail it. Sometimes there's going to be teams that miss it. And that's a part of the sport, but it's something we're all in it together. And so it's you skiing the race as well as you can with the equipment that you get from your equipment supplier, with the wax from your tech team that all combined creates the perfect race um, or the less than perfect race. And so... It's, it's really cool because I do feel like it's it's truly a team effort. And that's what made this season so special is because we were all in this together. It must be hard, though, when, you know, you're competing against your teammates. You, you know, one person comes in first, one person comes in second, third and fourth. So how do you keep it together when you're at the race time also competing against each other? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, a lot of it is just that 
you know, I, I love my teammates and I want them to do really well, but also, you know, you have to be able to say, all right, when the gun goes off, I just have to focus on my race, on my technique, on the pacing plan that I laid out for myself. You know, when am I going to change techniques on this hill? How am I going to speed this downhill? You have to be in the moment to be able to have a good race and also to not fall down on the downhill. So you really have to be able to separate that part of your brain that says, all right, now I am just focused on the doing of this task. Kind of like we talked about earlier with that Olympic race, you know, you have to be really in the moment and not focused on the people around you. You have to be aware of what they are doing and, and, and where they're moving, but you have to be in your own space as well. And so for me, it's like, I'm pretty much best friends with everyone up until the moment the gun goes off. And the moment we cross the finish line, then I'm there for everyone. And we're helping each other up off the snow and asking each other about our race. But I think it's understood that if you really respect everyone that you're competing against, then you got to go out there and give it your best shot. And to do anything less is disrespectful to the people that you're competing against to not go out and try your absolute hardest. And so for me, the best way to show that I respect my teammates is like, hey, I'm going to go out there and give it my hardest. And that way, if you beat me, you know that you're the best one out there because I tried really hard and the vice versa as well. You have been using your platform, which at this point, your social media platform has many tens of thousands of followers uh, to talk about other things, things other than skiing. You mentioned the Emily program is one of the things that you issues you raise. What are some other non-skiing issues that you've been wanting to elevate uh, on your platform? Thanks for asking. There's a lot of them. Um, <laughs> Protect Our Winners is a board that I just joined. I'm really, really excited about what they're doing because basically there's so many people across the U.S. that are so passionate about the outdoors. And when you think about it, if we could get all those people together to care and to advocate for different policy changes that could really move the needle on climate change, that's a lot of voices if we could kind of direct them in, in one way. So um, right now we have the Crush It for Climate Challenge, which is basically trying to get people aware of climate change and to just aware of what Protect Our Winners is doing and to just be mindful as you're going out on your awesome ski or your bike or your hike or climb or whatever it is that you do outside. Just be aware of how cool our planet is and how we, we do need to be aware of the fact that that might be taken away from us if we, if we can't act on it. Um, so that's one campaign that's going on right now. Um, I also fundraise for the With All Foundation and they have a really cool thing going on. It's called What to Say. And I think this is really important because a lot of us, want to be able to be good role models in terms of body image and um, how we talk about food and fuel and our bodies and kids that are listening to us, whether or not there are kids or kids that we come into um, interaction with as coaches or as teachers or just as role models in sport. And they really listen to what we say. So if I say in front of a child, like, oh, no, no, I, I can't eat that. That's bad. You know, I'm trying to be good today. I won't eat that. They pick up on that and that influences their perception of food is now good or bad. And so this um, initiative called What to Say Now um, equips adults with phrases and, and just basically thought prompts on how we talk about food and body in front of the children in our lives so that we can be those positive role models because fear of food and thinking about 
diets as something you have to do. That's a learned behavior in our, in our society. Like kids don't just show up in the world, like afraid of fat, you know, like they don't. And that's, that's a learned thing. And we, if we have the power to teach them that, then we have the power to teach them um, positive body image as well. So that's another thing that I'm really excited about, um, which I, I hope people go and check that out um, because that's, that's just another, another way of being a good role model. And finally, we're um, coming into a year. The Olympics are coming up again in 2022. Uh, it's hard to believe, especially because we have a summer Olympics that's coming up a few months before it. It's a little odd. What's your goal? What's your next goal for the next year? I think, honestly, this is going to be a funny goal, but my biggest goal around the Olympics is simply to roll into them feeling as prepared as possible in terms of athletic performance, um, mental readiness, emotional readiness, and then to just feel like I'm truly able to focus on the process and not be putting pressure on myself. Because let's be honest, there's going to be a lot of pressure put on me, whether or not I want it. Um, because of this last season, because of the last Olympics, I'm going to be coming in as a defending uh, overall um world champion in terms of the gold medal, but also in terms of winning the world cup. So there's going to be a lot of pressure and letting it become all about results or about the pressure to produce a medal is not the way to actually get a medal <laughs> at all. So for me, I just want to be able to really, you know, pull down the blinds on that external pressure, be able to shut that out and just focus on the process and about being prepared. Because for me, that's the way to make the games as enjoyable as possible, but also as successful as possible in terms of a pure performance standpoint. Well, Jesse Diggins, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation and congrats again on your amazing season. Thank you.